I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where I need everything. Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am not your host, PTF. He did text me this morning at 7 o'clock. Pete's one of those guys that thinks that everyone uses do not disturb on their phone and he's shocked that other people don't use it when i think the rest of the world kind of like assumes that you don't use do not disturb unless you know that you unless you know for sure pete pete doesn't he just he thinks everyone has on do not disturb so he just fires away text at three in the morning four in the morning five in the morning if he gets up early not that he stays up that late um and and just you know so then you know it doesn't really bother me that my wife's looking at me your phone's vibrating it's it's tough i am your host jonathan kinchin it is the day before thanksgiving uh it's wednesday last night i recorded this podcast i'm gonna get it up now it's one of the biggest traveling days of the year and tomorrow's a big traveling day and it's one of my favorite episodes i've done and so uh uh if you're new to this podcast because your significant other or friend is making you listen to it while you're driving somewhere uh Thanks for listening. Um, it's JK plus one. It's basically a long form conversation with a lot of the personalities and people involved in horse racing. Uh, we try to make it a little bit different stories and a little bit less of an interview, but sometimes it just ends up being that way. Um, and then you're in for a treat today. Um, someone who, who, who getting ready for this, I, I didn't really think about it. Uh, who's got just such a wide uh, array of experiences in this game, uh, in just by the nature of the job that, that Jay Privman had. Um, it, it's, it's a lot of fun just to kind of talk through all of these great moments in racing and, and, and talk through Jay's perspective on racing and, and kind of celebrate his career as well, uh, that, that, uh, he retired from, uh, in the last couple of years. So, um, look, we don't have a lot of time. You probably only have a 40. What is, how long does ways say until you get there? Okay, see, we better hurry up. I better get going. I think Jay and I talked for about a little over an hour. So um, hopefully you're not driving that much farther because that sounds like a nightmare. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe you're on a flight. Who flies on Thanksgiving Day? I've done it before. Um, I'm more of a day before type of, uh, of traveler. So let me stop rambling. Uh, my friend and uh, one of the best, if not the best sports writers of all time, Jay Privman. Jay, I, it's I, it's an honor to have you. I I I I think I think as I was kind of getting ready for this, I can't think of anyone that I think that in my time of racing has more uh, of a of a just the the ins and the outs of your knowledge and experiences and what you've seen and who you know and talk to and stories. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you, and that's a really kind way of saying politely that I'm old. Hmm. No, not old. Just <laughs> you know, you just been in. Look, you said you said that. I, I, you said that. But I will tell you a story. When I sent you the link, uh, we did. A, I had a real estate company in Austin. I, I still have it. But I, I, we were we needed some help, and we we went to hire uh, someone to kind of help us with some management stuff. Uh, maybe about ten years ago, and we got a bunch of 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 resumes and stuff. And we had a rule, me and my partner and I, that if anyone had an AOL email, we just weren't going <laughs> to we. We were, we just figured we weren't going to use them, but that would have backfired on missing out on an opportunity to hire Jay Privman. There go there goes my real estate career. <laughs> Jay, how's retirement treating you? How is Breeders' Cup, uh, this Breeders' Cup, uh, as a as a as a retired uh, sports writer? It was really enjoyable. It was it was it was great to run into you, and it was just fun to not be under deadline pressure. I thought the racing was great. 
you know, Santa Anita is obviously a great facility. The weather was wonderful. So it was, it, it was a great experience. Did you feel, did you feel, did it feel funny? Did you feel like, oh, what am I supposed to do? What do I do with myself? A little bit, but I, I got some of that Jonathan out of my system last year because I had retired before last year's Breeders' Cup, and I went to it at Keeneland, and it hit me more there because I watched the classic with Flightline, and then just turned around and left, and that was that was a strange but ultimately satisfying experience. You know, I was glad I covered most of that horse's career. The last big race that I covered was his Pacific Classic, and it was a pretty significant contrast to have covered that Pacific Classic for the racing form and then to watch his Breeders' Cup Classic and just leave and not have to worry about it. So did, it's, did you it's, have a bunch of, it's nice. Did, did you have a bunch of words you wanted to say, and you just did, – did you, did you lay in bed at night and that night and think, oh, uh, I, I want to, I, I wish I could take a crack at, at, at trying to, uh, trying to put this on paper. No, you know, I, I haven't had those feelings and I, and I thought I might, and you're, you're one of many people who have asked that. And it's, it's a, an obvious and legitimate question, but I really haven't had those kinds of experiences. In, in fact, to, to be honest, just because of a lot of what's gone on in racing this past year, I was kind of relieved. I didn't have to cover some things, but I do miss the the, the big races, it's it's fun to cover them. It's fun to write about them. But I, I really haven't had those pangs of like, oh, man, I really wish I could have written the story on Flightline's Breeders' Cup Classic or, you know, or Cody's Wishes race this year or White Barrio. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty content. You know, what's funny is, is I think that I think that when you and, and I don't want to speak for you on how you feel about your career, but how I feel about your career is like when I think when you when you feel you know, I've heard coaches say it too. I, I, you know, I think, you know, even Tom Durkin um, said it. I think that when you, when you, when you live the career you wanted to live and you feel proud of the career you had, and you feel like you've, you got to do a lot of the things you wanted to do. And there's not like these boxes unchecked. I think that you can turn the page and just kind of be like, no, no, I'm, I don't, I, no, I don't miss. I, I mean, I don't necessarily, you don't miss it, but that like, you don't have that feeling of, Oh, Oh, just one more at bat. One, oh, just one more, one more, oh, one more call. I wish I had one more call. And um, I, I listened to a podcast recently and I want to say it was coach K. I could be wrong about that, but I feel like someone asked him if he missed it. And he was like, no, no, I don't, I'm good. I, <laughs> I had a full, I had a full run. And uh, I don't know if that's part of the way you feel that you just, you got to do the stuff you wanted to do in your career. So you don't have that longing for more. Yeah. I, I think that's a large part of it. Um, but to be honest, I mean, I did have a little bit of that at, at the, I ended up sticking around for one more triple crown season because as you, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners know, I, I was pretty sick in, uh, in 2021. I had, I had to have surgery for bladder cancer and it was a, it was pretty harrowing situation. Fortunately, I got to city of hope. I got wonderful care and, you know, knock on wood now two and a half years down the line so far, so good. But to your question, you know, I was planning initially before all that happened on retiring at the end of 2021. The Breeders' Cup was going to be at Del Mar. That's the first track I ever went to. It's now near where I live. And I thought, you know, that'll put a nice bow on things. I've covered every Breeders' Cup but one. I've covered almost every derby since 1982. I, I felt satisfied. And then when I missed the triple crown of 
2021, because I was sick, I decided, you know what, I want if I'm well, I really want to have that one last go round uh, and get it out of my system and cover one more triple crown, which I was fortunately able to do in 2022. And then I was like, all right, now I'm good. And I, I still wanted my last work day to be at Del Mar because that's the first track I ever went to. And it's where I, you know, my passion for the game began. And so I had decided early on in 2022 that I was going to make the, the Labor Day weekend my final work week. And that way I'd be able to cover the Pacific Classic. Uh, and it was, you know, very fortunate that Flightline ended up putting on that show that he did that day. So I really felt like, okay, now I've got it all out of my system. You know, it's funny that when you hear people talk about, you know, like when you said, you know, you know, my last wanted to have one more triple crown. And I think to myself, like, you know, our triple crown in my, in my brain is it's, it's a three day thing for me. Well, you know what you, maybe it's a six day thing. If you talk about the Fridays <laughs> from Oaks day and things like that, but for you, I would imagine that your triple crown looked different, right? Like you, yours was probably a, what, like a seven week thing. Did you stay gone the whole time? Did you get to Derby two weeks early? Did you, did you go to, 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 to Pimlico and you were there for the two weeks and then you shipped right up to New York and you were there for the three weeks leading up. And was it a, was it a full run or did you run home in between? So in more recent years, I would go home and then come back. Um, in past years, like early on in my career, there were times where I would stay in between the Derby and Preakness or the Preakness and Belmont. In fact, when I first covered racing for the LA Daily News, my first job out of college, there were often uh, a road trip for the Angels, which was one of the teams that we covered, to Baltimore and New York and Boston in between the Preakness and Belmont. And I would cover the Preakness, cover two weeks worth of baseball, and then go on to the Belmont Stakes from there. And this is like in, you know, 86, 87 year, years like that. This is long before my my racing form tenure began. Uh, so, but in more recent years, I would cover the Derby go home, go back for the Preakness, go home and, and then come back for the Belmont. But also, Jonathan, because I was doing Derby Watch first for many years with Mike Watchmaker and then the final few years of my career with Marty McGee, our our Triple Crown coverage per se began in mid-February with our weekly Derby Watch countdowns. So even though I wasn't physically away for the the five to or to you know six seven weeks of pre breeders or pre excuse me uh, triple crown Kentucky Derby and then stick around for the Preakness and Belmont, the the coverage of it was extensive and for weeks on end. Jay, did you throughout your career did you place I I don't I don't didn't know this part of of of, of how you handled the sport. Did you bet um, every every Derby you were at? Did you did you bet a, a horse to win? Yeah, I, I would I would play. Uh, it, it's legal. It's 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 the reason that the sport exists, and it's how I first got into the game. So yeah, I would I would play. Uh, I, I hope nobody ever could read a story of mine and know who I bet on. Um, but yes, I, I I would play at the uh, at, at the Derby. How many of the 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 forty ish through your career? How many winners did you think you had? Do you, you can round. How many winners did you think you had? 
probably about a dozen. You know, there was a stretch where I I, I had, was on a pretty good roll. Uh, it certainly wasn't early on. I, I didn't pick Gato del Sol nor Sonny's Halo, which were the first two that I covered. But I, I think my best or my, my proudest pick ever was Real Quiet when he won the Derby in 98 because that was at a time when I was working as a West Coast correspondent for the New York Times, and they had me do a graded handicap for – the New York Times and I had picked real quiet on top and he, you know, he paid eight to one and uh, it was certainly not the favorite. Indian Charlie was considered the, the better uh, part of uh, Bob Baffert's too in that, uh, in that Derby specifically. So that's probably my, my nicest win. But, you know, then there was a stretch where I had kind of moto horses like Fusaichi Pegasus and, and horses of that nature. Did you, did you, is, is that, you know, throughout your career, was that kind of your favorite week? Is that like the, the week that, or was it a hard week that, that, that as from a professional standpoint, it was, it was taxing and it was hard and you, and, and you, you kind of wanted, you know, you knew you weren't going to do it. You were excited about the race, but you had it, you wanted to kind of get through it. Or did you, did you thoroughly enjoy it? Look forward to the week. You know, Jonathan, it was both. And it, and it's because of the way journalism has evolved in the internet era. It, it used to be my favorite week. When I first started out, you know, I covered my first derby in 1982. I was 22 years old. Uh, I was fresh out of college. The LA Daily News sent me back there. And it was, you know, after watching it for a number of years on TV to actually be there, I was in heaven. I, I just was the greatest thing to be able to see the Twin Spires in person and to cover the race. And then it was won by a trainer who I had gotten to know and respected with Eddie Gregson training Gata del Sol. So, at that point, I really, I would say it was my favorite week. It, it became much harder as journalism demands evolved. Back then, you wrote your one story, you turned it in, and it was in a newspaper the next morning, and you were done. Uh, over time, as you know, with social media and websites like drf.com, no matter when news happened, you were on. So if something happened in the morning while I was out there, I had to get a story done. If I had to get a feature story done, that was due at some point during the day. If I found out something in the evening, it, it had to be addressed. And it be, that, so that week, the demands of that, watching workouts, being out early, writing stories and, and all that, it, it became exhausting. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, especially that week, right. I, when I'm there, the, like for Derby or for Belmont and I just, you know, I got a couple, I gotta, I gotta do this video for two minutes. I, I gotta do a podcast at four o'clock, you know, whatever it is. I, I, I feel like my head is spinning and I don't have the nearly the deadlines that someone in your position would have. There's just so much going on you're being pulled in so many different directions. Uh, I can I can imagine how that have you know especially how it evolved from like you said from where you from from where you started Breeders' Cup week similar to that for you very much so uh, you know and not just for me I mean for anybody who was working for the racing form because we're covering two to three races per person who were on site for the Breeders' Cup uh, and even for the Derby week because as you know you know Derby Day's got a number of big stakes races as does Oaks Day and we're previewing those races and covering them so you know for all of us we were we were under a lot of uh, demands and you know, I was fortunate enough to do television work for ESPN and then NBC over the years and you know that added to 
the demands. And it was all great to be able to do. And I was very fortunate to be able to do all that. But time management was extremely important. And I, I would, the night before, I would literally sit down at my desk in the hotel room and write out you know, where I needed to be and when so that I wouldn't forget a meeting with NBC or you know a, a time when I needed to be at somebody's barn for an interview because I, I knew if I tried to just remember all of it without writing it down, I would I would mess something up. Yeah, it's 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 quite a bit. Um, well, one of my favorite things always when I have people on because I I think that like you know our our sport you know although we're so immersed in it and like it. it I think to the outside world, I think sometimes they're like, well, how did you get into horse racing? What was your origin story? What was your, your, your prequel um, to getting into racing? How, how did you fall in love with it? Um, and, and when did it happen? So it, it happened pretty early. Now, you know, when you, when I look back at kids that are the age that I was, when I got interested in it, I, I first remember watching a Kentucky Derby when I was nine years old. And that would have been Majestic Prince beating Arts and Letters in 1969. Um, and my dad, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in, in the L.A. area. Uh, my dad had grown up in New York, in Brooklyn, and moved to L.A. Uh, in his 20s and met my mom in L.A. And, and then they got married and I was their first of, of two children. And my dad was a huge sports fan. He One of the sports that he liked was racing. And he was just a $2 player, but he'd go with his buddies every once in a while. And so I kind of became aware of it on a more regular basis, kind of just sort of by osmosis, by him going to the track. And then what took it to an, an, another level was uh, in the summer of 1971, when I was 11, our family went on a like a five-day vacation down to the San Diego area. And we did what I, I call the animal trifecta. We, we went to SeaWorld. We went to the zoo and I really wanted to go to Del Mar. And so we went to the track. I don't think my dad minded going either. Cause like I said, he used to go every month or so with his buddies and I just loved it. I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Just the pageantry of it all, the watching the horses, the colors of, you know, with the jockeys. And I, in school, even though I ended up being a writer, my, actually my best subject, as, as a kid and, and into school was math. And the whole idea of trying to figure out this math puzzle every half hour, and then if you're right, great. And if not, a half hour later, you get to try and be smart again, really appealed to me. So that was that was kind of my first introduction to it. And I just followed it on a on literally a daily basis from that point through junior high and high school. I had buddies in, in junior high and high school who were as into it as I was. And we worked out a thing where our, we got our parents to take us to the track at least once a month, but the parents only had to do it like once every three or four months. And so I started going pretty regularly in, in my teens. And then the, the big break I got to make the move to, to the career that I had was I was working part-time at the LA Daily News when I was going to college uh, at Cal State Northridge. And they didn't really have anybody who covered racing on a regular basis. And when Spectacular Bid came to California for his four-year-old year at the very beginning of 1980, uh, I just put up my hand and said, can I cover that? And they're like, sure, go ahead, kid. So, you know, I, I covered spectac Spectacular Bid's Malibu stakes. I was 20 years old. I mean, I had no business, obviously, doing that in terms of, in terms of experience. You know, here's the, here's the, 
the reigning three-year-old champion. He went on to have an incredible four-year-old year. He's one of the best horses of the last uh, half century. <laughs> it's like, okay, 20-year-old kid, go cover the race. <laughs> but that was, that was the starting point. Could have you have you, do you have you read that recently? Did you can you can you read it and smile, or do you read it and say, "Oh, what was I what was I doing there?" Yeah, that one actually turned out okay. There's some of the stuff that I did early on. I mean, some of it I want to cringe at, and, and some of it's like, yeah, you know, that actually has held up. So, uh, uh, you know, hopefully things evolved over the years, and I got more consistent. But there there there's a few things from back then that that turned out to be okay. And there's a few that, you know, I, I hope nobody ever finds. If it wasn't for spectacular bid and that kind of, that kind of, uh, fateful day, would, would, would you have, do you think you still would have found your way there? Was that already your goal or did, did it just so happen that you knew you wanted to be a sports writer? You never really saw the path to doing it, uh, if, as a turf rider, as, as a, as a, as a horse racing rider, or, or how did that all work? Do you think you would have found it anyways? Where were you at there? I, I knew I wanted to be a sports writer or sportscaster. I knew that if I had my preference, I wanted to do horse racing, but I didn't know that I would get the opportunity to do horse racing. But most people who go to work back then for a daily newspaper wanted to cover, in, in the case of the paper I was at, they wanted to cover the Dodgers or the Rams or eventually the Raiders when they moved down to LA from, from Oakland. And of course the Lakers, that was kind of the showtime era. Uh, and then the Kings hockey team, uh, those were, and then you've got USC and UCLA. So those were prime beats still are really. Uh, and racing was not, even though it was a big deal, it wasn't considered as I think significant. And so I was hoping I'd get that opportunity, but certainly didn't expect to get it as quickly as I did. And, and once I did, I just ran with it. Well, I mean, I, I got to tell you, like one, I, I, I read it, uh, back in 20, uh, 22 when, when you retire, but then kind of reading again, your, your kind of your, your retirement letter, um, on the form, um, if you haven't read it and you listen to this podcast, hopefully you won't have to read it. Cause you will have heard so many of the, the same ideas <laughs> here, but, but the, uh, after 40 years of finding more of the wire beckons, I, your journey is just, it's, it, it's so cool because so many people that, that that I talk to in racing, they just kind of find themselves stuck into one part of racing, right? Even if it's a trainer, it's like, it's just, they just, all they do is train. They wake up, they train. Or if an owner, they, they, they own. It's a better, they bet. Um, your journey just was, was covered everything from, from the veterinarian uh, aspects of it, from the, the, the racing secretary aspects of it, the, 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 the celebrities, the big events, the, the 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 jockeys the everything it, it was it was it was just it was fun to read it was exciting thank you yeah no that was a fun thing to write and i was really appreciative that when i was leaving the, the forum and retiring that they gave me not only the opportunity to write that but all the space that they that they gave me to to, to tell the story because it ended up it was a pretty long story not something that usually you can you can get into print uh, online. It's a lot easier to do something like that. But no, I was very fortunate. And one of the things, Jonathan, when I first started out uh, covering the sport, you know, I didn't come from a horseman background. I didn't ride when I was a, a kid, hunter jumpers or things like that. So even though I liked to handicap and I liked horse racing, I, I certainly didn't know the horse itself aspect of it well at all. 
And I wasn't bashful, though, about going up to trainers and just asking what probably were the most level one-on-one questions you could ask. But I was very fortunate to be around people like Charlie Whittingham and Laz Barrera and Eddie Gregson and Bobby Frankel. And one other person I'm going to tell a story about in a second here, uh, who you know were incredibly helpful in explaining how things work and 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 what's what. And you know that's just an invaluable thing to do. And you you mentioned the jockeys or whatever. You know back then I I tried after every stake race to go to the jocks room and interview not only the winning jockey but a couple of the runners ups as well and to get to know them. And you know they didn't know me initially, and I would bring copies of stories that I wrote and the newspaper from that day and, and give it to them, you know, to like Lafitte Pinkai. Here's, here's what I wrote about your stake win yesterday. And just trying to get them to see that like, Hey, I'm trying here. Uh, hopefully I'm getting it right. And if I'm not, please tell me. Uh, the one trainer that I wanted to bring that I just alluded to a second ago that I wanted to bring up about sort of learning the sport. Um, it was a trainer uh, back then. He's since retired. He's still around uh, named Jerry Fanning, who was a really top trainer in, in California. He's probably best known for uh, desert wine was a, a horse that he trained. And that's what this story is going to entail. But he also trained little Reb who beat uh, affirmed during when affirmed was first starting out his four-year-old year in California. He got off to kind of a slow start. He got beat by, uh, by little Reb. Uh, and Jerry Fanning had a long, distinguished career in California. But anyway, getting to the story about how fortunate I was to have to be around people who would teach me and, and help me learn was one year or one day, excuse me, one day I'm by Fanning's barn and Desert Wine is supposed to run in a major race at Santa Anita. I can't remember if it was the Big Cap or the San Antonio, but it was one of those big races for older horses during the winter meet at Santa Anita. And he told me that he wasn't sure the horse was going to run because he had popped a splint. And I'm like, well, wh- what is that? And he, uh, he was in his tack room. He says, come with me. We go down, you know, to the first stall where desert wine is. And he says, here, feel this ankle. And I feel it. And okay, fine. He says, now feel this other ankle. And it felt like there was a pencil eraser popping out from the side of the horse's ankle. He says, that's the pop splint. And, you know, that, here's a guy who is training top horses. The horse in question is a big horse running in a major, who was supposed to run in a major race that week. He was the runner up in the previous year's Kentucky Derby to Sonny's Halo. And he was gracious enough to teach me, like, here's what a pop splint feels like. And then he explained what, what it was, what was going on under the, under the skin. But, you know, it's incidents like that really helped me learn from, you know, a veterinary standpoint or from a, a horsemanship standpoint. Uh, and, and it made, I, I hope, my coverage better because I was able to learn what I was writing about. And I think if you can pass that on to the readership, it makes it all the better. Yeah. And that's exciting too, right? Because like, it's not one of the things that, that I love about our sport is that the access I think is it's a little, it's a little bit more accessible, right? Like I can't just go pull up to, to, uh, to the Staples center or whatever it's called the crypto.com <laughs> thing now and watch LeBron shoot, you know, do shoot around. Like I can't just do that. But I think one of the things that's great about our game is that, 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 you know, that, that access is there. You go to Saratoga in the morning 
you're going to see Todd and Chad and Christoph and, 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 and Bill Mott and Shug. you're going to see those people and you can reach out and talk and, you know, I mean, they're busy, they're working, but it's a significantly easier proposition than talking to LeBron James before they play. Um, and then for you, I got to imagine that that moment of him bringing you in and teaching you, it's also just the excitement of the behind the scenes of, of, a, of a game that you are a fan of. Um, had, had the, that had to go a long way for you as well. For sure. I, you know, I, I felt like, you know, I was, I was really learning a lot more about a sport that I, I would have been a fan of anyway. And now I'm making my career out of this and I'm fortunate enough to be around people that are, are willing to teach me. And I, I think, and, and not just, it was a lesson that I learned early on and, and hopefully that, journalists who are starting out now early in the careers will come to learn too. If you show up and you show interest and you try and you try and get it right, people will gravitate towards that. You know, if, if you're just coming around once in a while or, or just doing it by phone, it's different. Uh, the, the relationship that you build. And, you know, I was talking earlier about spectacular bid and I gave that example with Jerry Fanning and, and, and desert wine, you know, the other, horse and people who were instrumental, Jonathan, early on in my career were, was the whole team around John Henry, because he was the first horse that I covered for an extended period of time at a high level. I mean, the first major horse I covered, as I said, was Spectacular Bid. But John Henry comes along and his horse of the year in 81. He competes in 82 and 83. And then he's horse of the year again at age nine in, in 1984. Uh, winning the Arlington Million and, and things of that nature. And that whole team of trainer Ron McAnally and at, at first Bill Shoemaker and then Chris McCarron riding him uh, and Louis Senecola, who was his exercise rider, and Eduardo Linda, who was Ron's assistant trainer. I mean, all of those people, uh, and, you, and the groom even, Jose Mercado, I got, I got to know. All those people were so helpful in terms of helping me understand what they were doing to keep that horse going, the, the horsemanship involved, the why a training regimen was set up the way it was, why you would work a horse a certain way after a race and build up to, a, to the next one. I mean, all of that stuff was invaluable. What did you learn with, with John Henry that kind of prepared you? And I'm not comparing the two. I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, to to kind of prepare you for the the superstardom that was Zenyatta, right? Being a, a West Coast guy with with the run that she was on, um, I'd like to think that there were some comparisons and and how uh, their followings and how you covered those two horses. There, there were definitely legitimate comparisons about the followings. I mean, they were homegrown kind of phenomenons. You know, John Henry had had raced plenty of other places before he got to California, but he became adopted by California and went on to his greatest success while based in California. And then Zenyatta was more of a, a homegrown uh, phenomenon, but both became extremely popular. They were must-see kind of runners for, for whenever they ran. When, whenever John Henry ran, it was crazy, the, the crowds. And, and that was pre-simulcast era. So the on-track crowds were far larger for him on a, on a regular basis than they would have been by Yada came around. And one of the things that 
I, I think one of the biggest overall comparisons I would make was they had such huge fan bases that you really felt like you've got more on this story that you're doing than you would for just the feature race on a generic Saturday at Hollywood Park. And if that means you take the extra few minutes to, to double down on making sure you have it right, you better because more people are going to be looking at this than, than a, a regular story that you do on a daily basis. Your, your, your favorite place to go to work, was it Del Mar, Hollywood Park, or Santa Anita? If you're heading over in the morning, your favorite place to go to work? Well, for the morning, I don't think you can beat Clocker's Corner. Uh, at, at Santa Anita. That's just a great spot. All the trainers come through there, either going to or from the barn. Uh, or And if they're not there, they're out on the apron or up in the stands watching their horses breeze. So it's just a great place, to, uh, you know, to, for, from a morning standpoint. You know, Del Mar's terrific as well. I love mornings at Belmont Park as well. Uh, when I would cover the Belmont Stakes, it's a huge air cover with the training track and the main track there. But I just think that stable area is fantastic, and I, I enjoyed that. But I I really the track that I really enjoyed working at in the afternoons the most was Hollywood Park, and I really miss Hollywood Park not being around anymore. It was on the west side of LA, so even though it was hot in the Summertime, it was always cooler over there. Uh, we had these big windows that that opened, so you got all natural, uh, you know, fresh air coming into the press box th- throughout the day. It was kind of a cool scene facing east because you'd see all the planes lined up coming into LAX on final approaches. They would come to the two runways that they were going to be landing on, um, and I really enjoyed working out of that press box. It was it was big. There were pl- it was plenty of room for everybody. It was uh, two two levels, uh, and it was that was probably my favorite press box that I've worked out of over the years. You must really hate the Chargers, right? You're a guy close oh. to San Diego, and they play at Hollywood Park. I don't refer to that as SoFi Stadium. I call it Hollywood Park. It 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 kills me on a lot of levels. Um, yeah, I, I hate watch the Chargers. You know, I love that their quarterback. I think he's an incredible talent, and it pains me that he's stuck with that organization because I, I want the, the organization to do poorly. And, and fortunately they usually uh, play to those expectations or hopes that I have for them. Um, but this is how much that Hollywood park being gone and, and the chargers and even the Rams, obviously both being at, at, at SoFi has bothered me. I went to the la- the next to last day of Hollywood park. It, it, I couldn't, bear to go to the final day itself, but I was there for the next to last day. And I have never driven to that area since then. I haven't gone to a football game there. I haven't even gone to the forum, which is right next door. You know, the Clippers are, are building a new arena in that neighborhood now as well. And I just, I can't do it. I can't, I don't want to see what it looks like now. I want to still remember the last image I had of that track and not have it colored by what it's become. So I've, I've, it's now more than 10 years since, or about 10 years since Hollywood Park last race. And I have not been in that neighborhood since then. You know, it's funny. Like I, I remember, you know, I obviously I, I grew up in Texas. I, I fell in love with racing in Texas and I, I, you know, I went to Lone Star Park and, 
And, uh, you know, I was an HR TV guy. I was a TVG guy, depending on what, 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 you know, what racing was on, so on and so forth. And, and now that you say that, I remember one of the most impactful things in racing that got me hooked was Friday nights at Hollywood <laughs> Park. Uh, yeah, they were just, fun. I, I used, I love it. It was so much. I used to love to watch it. It was, it was, it was just so much fun. It was, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. The trainers hated it because most of them lived over near Santa Anita and, and it made for a late night, but it was great. It was a completely different atmosphere, a completely different crowd of people. And it was, it was a terrific thing. And I, I think on balance, it was, it was a net positive uh, for, for the sport. And I, I, I certainly miss him. Uh, I, you know, Delmar does, the four o'clock Fridays in the summer, but it's, it's not like they're, they're racing under the lights or something like that. It was, it was a different atmosphere and it, it was a lot of fun and they'd occasionally have con post-race concerts there too. And they'd get some, some decent acts. So it was, it was a fun time. Do you, I remember watching TV all the time and you were, you were plugged in. I, I was a, I was a neophyte at that point. So I, I, who knows? I, and I think now that I know the game a little bit better, I think I know the answer, but do you think that horses actually ran better under or worse under the lights? Do you think that they cared, some of the horses? I don't know. I know there were some trainers who thought that there was the occasional horse who would spook under the lights. Just It was just unnatural for them. Um, but I think most horses were, were fine with it. But there was definitely the occasional horse that a trainer would tell you they just would, would free. You could tell from the time you were going to lead them over from the – from the stables that they just did not react well to, to the lights. Jay, the other part of, you know, let's for the sake of this conversation, we'll call it your, your, your retirement letter, your, your, um, <laughs> that, that really stood out to me is just all the great trainers that you were able to, to, to be around and have access to. Um, because not only were you, did you, did you, were you, a, a you know, you were based on the West coast, but because you were also the national kind of correspondent doing the triple crown and doing the breeders cup, you still had access to those East coast guys as well. Um, but, but with all of that said, you're on, you know, you're quoted as saying that you believe that Charlie Whittingham was the best. What, what was it about him that stood out above all of the rest of the really good ones that I know that you also admire? Yeah. He, a number of things. I mean, he could train any kind of horse. Um, he could train a sprinter if he had to. Obviously, most of his success was with older horses going long, but he had good sprinters over the years. I mean, his horse of the year in 1971, Akak, was you know a sprinter who he, who he turned into a mile and a quarter winner as well. Uh, it was an incredible training feat just with that horse. Uh, he could train imports from Europe or South America. Uh, he he was just incredibly patient with horses. He knew how to give them time off. He could train a horse up to a, a mile and a quarter race off of a lengthy layoff and have the horse perform. Um, but the other thing that I, I always admired about him, I, I got on really well with him. Um, and he, he was kind of like the Pied Piper when it came to being around animals. He had dogs that would just follow him instinctively as the dogs that he had at his Barn. Uh, his, his favorite was a, a dog named Toby. In fact, the the bronze of Charlie that's in the paddock gardens at Santa Anita has uh, a, a bronze of his dog Toby uh, next to him. 
but he would he would do what, what they call evening stables uh, in Europe. But you know, when he was done with his work day, he would go down the shed row and just poke his head into every stall. And you could just see the reaction from the horses towards him, uh, how they kind of gravitated towards him. You could see that they really trusted him uh, in terms of their care. And he just had this sixth sense with, with animals, obviously with horses, but I, I could see it with the way he was with, with, with dogs as well. And it was, it's kind of that, that, that really just always left a, an imprint with me about his skill level. Uh, I mean, he was a horseman. He wasn't just a, a handicapper. Uh, and there's plenty of terrific trainers who were, who got into it through handicapping, but he came at it from a, a, and he knew how to handicap, but he came at it from a, a different level. And that's kind of what stood out for me in terms of why he would rank number one on my list. I've heard similar stories uh, about Bobby Frankel, right? I mean, like yes, <laughs> his relationship. He's number two. That's really funny that you, I mean, that, that he's the, he would be number two on my list um, of, of trainers for all the, the same kind of reasons, but he came at it from a handicapping standpoint initially. That's how he got into the game, but he became uh, a, an incredible horseman. And he also had that sixth sense with animals, uh, with, with both horses and dogs. You might remember, Jonathan, there was the year that the Breeders' Cup was at Monmouth Park. Um, Bobby ended up not coming to that year's Breeders' Cup because uh, one of his longtime dog that he had at the time uh, named Happy was, was deathly ill, and he, he just didn't leave. So he Ginger Punch won that year's distaff with Bobby watching on TV at home with an ailing dog. Yeah, that, that I think that's the story that I that I heard that, that made me think of that. And and you know, and, and another part you mentioned is that I thought was really interesting too, is that is that through your career, and this is not me calling you old, your AOL email was was really <laughs> responsible for that. I I uh you 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 got to see you've gotten to see so many levels of greatness. You know, you, you saw the Charlie Whittinghams, you saw the Bobby Frankels, but then I, I love that you mentioned that you also had the, the 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 pleasure of watching the careers of of the new age of great trainers that learned under the great trainers that you got to watch with Chad and Michael McCarthy and and, and Todd Pletcher. What is yep. it about those guys that that reminds you of kind of the old school run of greatness? Well, I mean, all three of those guys that you mentioned, I think, are are terrific trainers, and one of the reasons that. I've enjoyed watching their careers is because I knew all of those guys when they were assistants. I knew Chad when he worked for Bobby. You know, I knew Todd when he worked for Wayne Lucas. In fact, I remember Todd telling me at Belmont Park uh, that he was going to be going out on his own. Uh, and that was when he had, when he went out on his own, he only had, I think like six horses. Uh, and, and most of them were, from Cot Campbell with Dogwood. Um, and then Michael, I've known because he was initially is initially from California. And I knew him when he was an assistant for Ben Cecil. And then he went back and had that long apprenticeship with Todd before he then came back to California uh, and, and went out on his own. And so that to me is, it's been satisfying seeing them 
because I, I kind of knew them before they became who they've become. Uh, and you could tell back then that they were going to be successes because their their attention to detail, I think, is really what sets all of sets those three apart. Uh, they they don't miss a trick. No, no, you're you're right, and 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 you know I've 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 had the pleasure to to have more in depth and and more you know conversations with Chad and with, with Michael than I have with Todd. I mean, Todd and I get on well, but I don't haven't, you know, sat at dinners with him to talk, but you're right. The, the details of those two and, you know, Michael McCarthy wouldn't, I, I, I got to meet Michael because he, uh, my friend, Jake Ballas of black type thoroughbreds before he started black type had a horse with Michael and he met Michael through when Michael was Todd's assistant. Cause he had a horse with Todd and we went to Del Mar and, and I met Michael there and then, we became friendly and, and, you know, chatted. And I remember going to the Pegasus and this is before I really got to like hang out with trainers and know what, what a trainer's job is and how they do their thing. And, you know, I was like, Hey Michael, let's grab dinner one night, you know, whatever. And he would not leave city of lights side. He wouldn't leave. Yep. He just, he just like, and, and he wasn't being like weird about it. He was just like, no, well, yeah, let's, let's, well, why don't you come by here? We'll hang out. Just come, you know? So I went by <laughs> there and hung out and then, you know, and, and he just, you know, then we're at the races, you know, on a Friday before. And I'm like, hey, we're, we got a suite if you want to swing by and just, you know, hang out for a second. He's like, and he sends me a picture. He's like, I'm not leaving this horse's side. He's just sitting in a chair in front of City of Lights stall. And then when he shipped Cece, I, I think when he shipped Cece to uh, to Oakland Park, he flew on the plane with her, yep. on the on the cargo plane with her. And that's when I realized like, oh, there's different levels to this. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, and I get along with Michael, so I can say this. He, he, he probably didn't mind saving the money, you know, flying on the on the cargo <laughs> plane instead of having to buy a, an airline ticket. Um, no, but I, 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 what you just outlined there, I think, shows the dedication that it it, it takes to succeed at that level, um, and the and also the passion that people like Michael or Todd or Chad or some of the others that we've discussed have for for doing this because it's it, I mean it's more than a job it's seven days a week you're responsible for for a number of animals it's you've got a family to take care of you know Michael was away from his family for a long time he's married he's got a daughter um, you know that, that was hard and that's one of the reasons he's now back in California uh, was he was just away too much early on and it's a it's a real sacrifice that the time that this job, entails for for trainers and and for jockeys and and grooms and hot walkers as well i mean anybody who's involved in the day-to-day -day care of a horse it's it's a lifestyle I mean, you're that's that's your life not just your job and it takes an incredible amount of of dedication and passion to, to do it and to do it well you know, this might be hard for you to do, but throughout your career, just that one day that kind of sticks out is, is one of your favorite days. And I'm going to ask you your, your, your least favorite day uh, as well. And you can, if, if that one pops in front feel free to change the order here, uh, your favorite day uh, throughout your career. Uh, there'd be two. It's, 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 it's a, it's a toss up uh, for, for me. American Pharaoh's triple crown was just an incredible thing to witness, you know, especially since, it had been so long, 37 years, uh, since the, the affirmed had won the Triple Crown. And I wasn't covering racing yet. Uh, I, I saw Triple uh, Affirmed 
as a four-year-old in California, but I never, uh, and as a three-year-old as well, uh, but I, I, I never, I wasn't covering races and I was just a fan at that point. And there were so many triple crown near misses in the years that I had, in the years since I had started covering the sport, you know, going back to Sunday Silence and Ali Sheba in the 80s and then, you know, into the 90s and and then into the 2000s as well with all the, I think there might've been 11 uh, near misses at, at that point until, uh, you know, even California Chrome, obviously the, the year prior to American Pharaoh. So to see it finally happen uh, to me was just a really satisfying thing to see, to know that it, it is an achievable thing that a horse can win a, a triple crown of three races at three different tracks in three different States at three different distances in just five weeks, if the horse is truly special. And I, I think that really stood out uh, for me, uh, just that it, it, it can be done and how satisfying it is when it is, when it does happen. So that would be one of the two. And the other one, Jonathan, when you referenced her early on in this conversation, it was Zenyatta. Her win in the Breeders' Cup Classic at Santa Anita was as good a, an event as you could be at. And not only was it just a great thing to witness the way that she rallied in that race and and got up to win and the the crowd reaction was amazing because she was doing it in front of her most adoring fans. Um, but my television assignment for that show was with uh, with ESPN, and my assignment was to just shadow John Sheriffs. So I'm I'm standing just off camera there's a camera on John Sheriff's right when the race ends, I'm standing next to the cameraman. And then after they get that initial shot of him, I go over and get his reaction to what happened. Cause John, he likes to watch races from about a hundred yards up from the finish line around the 16th pole, just, or maybe 70 yards or so standing by the outside rail, or sometimes he's on the apron, but he, that's kind of the way he, he rolls. And I've got, I got on, I get on well with him and I respect, you know, what he wants to do before the race. I leave him alone, but I'm standing there and it's sort of understood without being stated that like, I'm here and I'm going to be talking to you, hopefully if you win, but even if you lose, they might still come to me and I'm just going to leave you alone until I need you. And when she won that race and the reaction of the crowd and then to, Obviously, they wanted me to get to him as quick as I could. And we had this really terrific interview where he's just the joy emanating from him is just overwhelming. And I remember after we finished, we started walking. The interview was over and they were taking other shots of Zenyatta galloping back now with Mike Smith and the crowd and everything else. But we started walking down the, the track towards the outside rail. And at one point, John just stops. And in this moment of pure joy, he takes the ball cap that's on his head and he just flings it into the crowd. Um, and, you know, that whole sequence was an extremely uh, enjoyable thing to witness, to, to be a journalist at, to be part of. Uh, so those would be the two, the, the triple crown clincher for American Pharaoh and then Zenyatta's Breeders' Cup Classic. Well, before we get to the to the to the to the darkest day, the toughest day um, throughout your career, I, I got some follow ups there. Did you? So we'll start with Zenyatta. Did you think she was going to win? Did you like her in the classic? Uh, 
I wasn't sure she could, she could beat that field. Um, you know, quality road was in the race. Um, and, but he ended up scratching cause he threw a wingding at the gate. Um, but it, it was kind of, obviously she had done well on synthetic surfaces and that race was run on, uh, on the pro ride, but it's funny, John sheriffs will maintain to this day that she tolerated it, that she, she ran well on the, those surfaces, but he still thinks that she was better on dirt. And I think her apple blossom performances might show that even her, her, her one losing effort in the, on dirt at Churchill Downs and her final start might show that as well. That I think many believe that was the best race she ever ran. Um, so I thought she could win, but did I expect her to win? I, I, I can't, I can't say that I did. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. I thought she could win. I also think that her classic where she lost the blame was her best race she ever ran. And I think she handled the dirt better than she handled the synthetic. Um, I agree with all those things. Um, Triple crown. You talked about American Pharaoh and the 37 year drought. Kind of two questions here. What if, you know, jokingly, obviously, but if you could go back now, which one, which triple crown failure would you still bet? Cause you thought, you were just so damn certain that that horse was going to get it done. Which of the failures did you think was definitely going to get it done? Oh, that I thought would get it done. That's a good question. Um, wow. Cause I, I know which one I didn't uh, or a couple I didn't, I didn't think war emblem would, and I didn't think um, big Brown would because big, big Brown just wasn't right that week. Um, but wow. I, I can't say I thought California Chrome was going to win because I, I picked against him. Um, that's a that's really and I can't. I mean, I thought Sunday Silence might get it done, but it was you know the margin between him and Easy Goer was so razor thin in the Preakness that it didn't surprise me that Easy Goer beat him. It, it surprised me that he beat him as, as badly as he did in that in that in that Belmont. But you know, I, I certainly thought. Sunday silence could win that race. Um, so I, I, that's Ali Sheba was going off Lasix for the Belmont. Uh, that's man. I, I don't know which one would stand out of like, I, I, I thought for sure this horse is going to, is going to do it. And he didn't. Um, that's a, that's a, I, I did maybe know. silver, maybe, maybe silver charm just cause he's just seemed to, to, he was such a dogged horse. He just seemed like he would outfight. You know, he got into a street fight with him, and 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 he beat you. And I think maybe he was the one I thought would would even though it was close. That whole series was was terrific, and the horses were pretty evenly matched with Touch Gold and Free House, and you know Captain Bodget bowed out before the Belmont. But you know that was a good evenly matched group of horses, but I think he just always seemed to find a way to win. So maybe if I, you know, if, if I had to pick one, I, maybe I would, I would say him, but it was, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a good, but tough question. <laughs> I didn't know it then, but I, I, but I think like looking back at it now, when I look at it, I, I would say to my, I like, I would definitely, if they got back in the gate again, I would definitely single Smarty Jones. Right. Um, and- That's a good one. Yeah, I just, I'm still like looking at it now. Like I'm still shocked the horse got beat. I mean, he that that was just uh, random aside. I was at I was I don't know why I was in Detroit. My father grew up in Detroit. We were in Detroit for a wedding or a something. I don't even know who was getting married. 
think it's 2004. I have no idea. But we went to Hazel Park, an old harness track <laughs> my dad used to go to. And I watched Smarty Jones lose <laughs> at, at Hazel Park. That's that is as bad as random as uh, and a, a sequence of events as there could be. I'll tell you one other one that you know a lot of people thought would would get it done, but but I was against was was funny side against meaning in terms of picking, not like that I wanted him to lose. I just want to make sure the context of that is correct. But there was a funny thing that week. Uh, MSG had Dave Grenning and I into the studio the night before the race to do a Belmont Stakes preview. And, you know, the whole show was basically centered around funny side. Funny side's won the Derby, he's won the Preakness, he's, now he's going to the Triple Crown, funny side this, funny side that. They get to the very end of the show, and Al Troutwig was the host of the show. And he, he turns to Dave and I, and he says, so, is he going to get it done? And we both go, no, <laughs> we like Empire Maker. <laughs> so, um, who, who did, in fact, win that race in a, in a, in a miserable, miserable afternoon. Uh, so there were... It's funny to think about all these near misses that we had until uh, until American Pharaoh finally won it. But you know, just I think all those near misses made American Pharaoh winning it all the more satisfying. It, I, I don't think it would be as memorable if the if it happened every other year. And it, it's a special thing. It takes a special horse and. You know, in the case of all the ones that we've mentioned and, and some that we have yet to mention, like Real Quiet or Charismatic, you know, they just they weren't good enough. Uh, and in Real Quiet's case, barely wasn't good enough. But, you know, that that's that was the way karma fell that that day. And uh, it, 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 it did finally happen. And, and it, I'm glad it happened. But I'm glad it's an infrequent thing because it makes it all the more special. Well, based on the way you answered that or the way that you just kind of laid that out, I think I know the answer to this question, but I have to ask you as someone who's who's followed it as long as you have, do you, do you want it to stay the same or, or are you yes. okay with the adjustment? No, I, I want it to stay the same. Um, I, I, you know, it shouldn't – I don't want it to change. It's been the same way for a long time now. Um, there, I think if you, you, you change it up, it'll be – You'll always wonder, could that horse, and, and if a horse wins, you'll always wonder, well, could he have won it uh, under the, the previous circumstances? And you'll never know if, if, if you change it. Um, I, I know some people say you, you'd be making it easier by spacing it out. Some people say you'd be making it harder by spacing it out because you'd have to keep a horse sounder longer and you might have the same core group of horses always lining up. Uh, again, uh, let's say if the races were four weeks apart and then four weeks apart, but I, I like it the way it is and call me old fashioned, but I'll, I'll, I'll accept that, uh, that label. Well, look, I mean, I'm one of those people where like, I'm fine with making changes for the right reasons and making changes because it's, it's going to help and it's going to grow and it's going to this. And I'm all, and I'm fine with making changes because there's no other, other, there's no other options. Right. Like, I mean, I have, but but when it comes to this, I, I think of it in a couple of ways. Um, I think people speak. I think I think if the Preakness purse, let's just play pretend. If the Preakness purse was five million dollars, uh, let's say the Derby's five million, and 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 the, and the Derby run. You know, and if you ran in the Derby, you're running for five million dollars in the Preakness, and if you ran in both of those, you're running for ten million in the in the in the Belmont. Horses wouldn't skip the race. 
And I right. think the problem is, is people think the horses are skipping the race because it's not what's best for them. No, it's because they're looking down the road to bigger and better. And I think that it, so, so, so that would be one suggestion that I would have is let's, let's get a nice bonus system in place where these horses will run back. And I just don't believe that it's a horse welfare thing. I, I think that we have a lot of horse welfare pressure. And so there's a lot of, you know, I understand us looking to try to relieve that pressure. I just don't think this is the place to relieve the pressure. Now, Steve Christ, I think, puts it best. Um, he has frequently said, and I'm going to give him full credit for this. He said, the Triple Crown is the one thing racing gets right. Uh, it's, it's a finite amount of time where people are laser focused on the sport. And, you know, usually that's, it's, it's a great thing to have people focused in on it. I don't know that you would hold people's attention uh, if it was spaced out longer uh, than, you know, let's uh, to use the, the hypothetical I gave a moment ago, if it was four weeks to the Preakness after the Derby and then another four weeks to, to the Belmont, I don't know that you'd hold, the general public's uh, attention like you can and do now during the, the triple crown season as is. No, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I've taken, I've taken or, or, or watched with or hung out with uh, a bunch of people that have never been to the Derby before. And you take them to the Derby, you get them excited for the, even if it's just for the day, you get them going for that day. They are going to text you the Saturday morning, two weeks later, they're going to ask. They're going to talk to you about the Preakness and they're going to watch it wherever they are. They're going to, they're going to tune in. And I think that that's to that point, you know, if you spread it out a little bit more, but, but, you know, I also find myself like, I feel very confident about the way I laid it out earlier, but I also, my disclaimer is, is like, I don't want to be the guy. The biggest problem we have in racing is people saying, well, that's just not how we do things. That's the biggest enemy we have. <laughs> right. So I don't want to be that person that says, oh, well, that's just not how we do things. But I don't think that this is something that that needs to be jacked with in that regard. That's no, I, I, I'm, I'm in that corner as well. Leave it alone. Toughest day on the job. And then we'll, we'll get this. I'm just going to drag you down here into the dirt. And then I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go back fun before we, uh, before we get out of here. 1990 Breeders' Cup. Um, it was just a brutal day. Um, you know, starting with the sprint where there was an accident where uh, – Two horses uh, lost their lives. And then, uh, you know, later on with the gopher wand breakdown in, in deep stretch against Bayakoa and the distaff, that that was just a, a brutal day to be at. Um, it was it, it was really hard. I remember getting back to my hotel room. I was staying at the Long Island Marriott um, just down the road from Belmont Park. And I remember just basically collapsing in the bed uh, when I when I got back there after finishing the day's work. Uh, and I remember I was still working for the LA daily news then. And I, I remember calling it the, the darkest day in you know, recent American racing. Um, cause it, it, it was just brutal. So that, that would, that would be it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully nothing ever tops that in, in the, in the perverse way of topping. Jay, it, it, obviously, you know, racing's given you, uh, some of the highlights of your life. It's given you your career. It's given you so many things that you, you can tell just by talking to you and seeing your work and what you've dedicated to the game with your life, that, that, that you're passionate about it. And, and obviously it's, 
it's something that that you know it's 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 you know whether it was the 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 the, the nasty run that at, at Santa Anita uh, a few years back, whether it's the, the the Churchill Downs run Derby Week, whether it's the 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 two significant, and I'm not taking away from the other incidents, just the two that stand out this summer um, at Saratoga. It, it, I I always struggle um, trying to explain to other people. And the best way I try to do it is like, oh, look, uh, it's it's uh, it's a, it's a there's 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 dog owners that uh, aren't very nice to their pets, but ninety nine percent of pet owners uh, create this beautiful experience for these wonderful animals that we have for a short amount of time, and that's how I would compare horse racing. It's unfortunate, um, it's an unfortunate event that that, that comes along with it, but. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, it, as a whole, it's a, it's a great experience for these animals and they enjoy being there and doing it. And I try my hardest to explain that, but I'm not a wordsmith. Uh, how do you, how do you handle it? Uh, how do you handle yeah, it, the conversation? Yeah, no, it's a hard thing to, to, to witness. Um, it's, and it's a hard thing to try and explain, like, like you just said, to people who don't, uh, or aren't involved in the sport to the level that some, you know, someone like, like you and I are um, a couple of things though, that, you know, like you said, I'm sure 99% of the people who, who deal with horses are, are, are doing it for all the right reasons. And I try and always explain when something like that happens, it, it's not necessarily and, and frequently it's not the result of carelessness that has caused something like that to happen. I mean, oftentimes it's, you know, it's an unfortunate act of God uh, for lack of a better term, but it's not because somebody purposely sent uh, a, an endangered horse out there, it, it, you know, in the scrutiny that the horses are, are under now is extensive and, and, and that's great. I mean, they, they should be. Um, and, but you're, you're never going to prevent 100% something bad from happening when you're talking about a performance horse uh, endeavor. And that's not just with racing. Horses who are show jumpers can get hurt. Uh, horses who are trail horses can get hurt. I mean, that, they're, they're athletes. And occasionally, they're going to get hurt. And if, if you, I think if you try and frame it that way while also – accurately saying that we're doing the best we can for them and are continuing to push to do even better uh, with every diagnostic tool that comes along. It's, it's put into use, whether it's a PET scan or a heart monitor, uh, you know, the level of uh, diagnostics that can be done now compared to when I started out has, has come along by leaps and bounds. And that's, that's all for the better. Um, and I think as long as we continue to push forward in that regard, you know, and try and do the very best that we can, we, we can make it the best sport that we can. But I, I, I think to try and say, to, I, I don't like when people say, you know, this can't happen ever because that's just not a realistic goal. And the only way that that's never going to happen is it for you to not have a sport but if you go down that route, and this is where I come back to performance source, then I'd say like, okay, so are we going to do away with show jumping and trail riding and 
somebody having a, a, a pet in their backyard like that because they're all subject to have, unfortunately, bad things happen, whether it's fracturing an ankle or, or getting colic. <laughs> and uh, I think as long as we try and give them the best care possible, and as you know, I mean, this is what they want to do. I mean, they're, they're, they're eager to go out and perform. You see a horse go out to train in the morning and they want to get at it. That's what they want. So it's not like we're, I think, forcing them to do it. I mean, maybe in some cases there are some who don't want to do it. And I think you learn that pretty quickly and, and, and they go off and do other things. They become trail horses right away as opposed to racehorses. But I think most racehorses have that innate desire to compete. No, I agree. And I, I think that the, the one thing that I, I, and I don't know the answer to it, but I, I said it recently, is like we, we, we find ourselves in this very uncomfortable position where apologizing doesn't really do us any favors, but not apologizing makes us look like we don't care. And it's like that. It's like the happy medium is really hard to find. Right. Um, you know, I was on, we were on real Fox, big Fox, the two in the two big incidents. Um, and I was on air for both of them at Saratoga this summer. And it, I, it's like, what, what we're going to go to a post parade now. Like what, like, like, what do you, what do you, you know, it's, I, and I think we did a good job of balancing it is the, to the best that we could, but it's, it's an impossible task to try to navigate. It is. It's, it's, it's really challenging. And I think you just have to stick with, you know, one thing that was always drilled into me as, as a reporter, whether it's that or other things, don't speculate, just report on what you know, and don't say we think this could happen or we think that could happen. Just give the facts that you know at that point, you can always update things later on and continue to give the best information possible. That's that's all you can do when you're in a in a journalism uh, aspect, you know, endeavor and, and an incident like that happens. Jay, the biggest race you never saw live that might surprise some people. The biggest race that I never saw, you mean that, that I should have been at, but wasn't. Well, just like, which like, you know, like, like a, you know, just some random, I'm trying to think of someone, uh, who, who did I have on that told me that they didn't win the Arlington, that they didn't, that they didn't win the Arlington million. I was like, really? You never won the Arlington million? Was it Mike Smith? Is Mike Smith ever won the Arlington million? Maybe not. It was Mike yeah. Smith. I think Mike Smith told me he never won the Arlington million, which caught me off guard. So it was almost like, what race did you, did you never really see live? It was a big race in this country that you're 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 surprised you never saw live. Wow, um, the Long Acres Mile is probably the biggest race I've never attended in this country. Wow. I've pretty much seen everything else. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to see a number of Arlington Millions and you know all the Derby Prep type races at different tracks I've been to, and I've been at every Breeders' Cup but one uh, over the years. The only one I missed was was twenty twenty one at Keeneland. Um, so I'm going to say the Long Acres Mile, uh, which so that I consider myself pretty fortunate if that's the biggest race I've never attended. <laughs> okay, so big, a little bit. We'll stay on big races here. What? Um what's your favorite race? Like just, you know, it's not the Kentucky Derby, right? What's your, which I, I, I believe that you're more creative than to give me the Derby anyways, but 
what is your favorite race? If you got to see one race in 2024 live, what would be that year? What's your favorite one? Wow. Domestically, it, it would be the Breeders' Cup Classic. Um, internationally, it would probably be the very first race of the week at Royal Ascot. Um, I, I've gone over for that a couple of times and it's just, you know, the, the Queen Anne stakes, you've got a grade one straight mile with top older horses to start off this terrific five day run of racing. And it's just the anticipation of that. And the, the, the first time I ever went to Royal Ascot was, um, in 99 and the Queen Anne happened to be won by uh, a coworker of yours, Gary Stevens. And that was great. I mean, to be at Royal Ascot for the very first time and to see Gary Stevens win a race uh, right off the bat was, was terrific. So that's probably, I would say the first race at Royal Ascot each year uh, and or uh, uh, the Breeders' Cup Classic at at Del Mar next year. All right. A couple, a couple of fun ones here. We'll, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. Um, you know, I, look, I'm a, a, I used to listen to Steve Bick all the time. I was actually a caller one time. Uh, it's my favorite <laughs> thing to tell. My favorite thing to tell Chad Brown is I was like, I was like, Chad, you know that I called in Steve Bick show and said that if I could, if I could get in touch with you, I would tell you that you have to run Bobby's kitten down the hill. So that <laughs> I have owner, I have ownership in that decision. You know, he always laughs at me about that, but um, I, I did learn that you're, you're quite the foodie. You, you like, you, 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 you like to, to get to a restaurant. Um, let's just do a little racetrack uh, rapid fire. I, I know yeah. your Belmont answer. I, I know it's King Umberto's, but what's your order at King Umberto's? Uh, well, sometimes they have something on the menu named after me. So I feel like I'm called to order that because it would just be poor form not to, um, <laughs> even if it's something I might not normally eat. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm pretty basic when it comes to what I like. I either like, I either get pizza there from there for lunch or for dinner. I'm, I'm kind of a chicken parm guy. There's nothing wrong with that. It, uh, that's it's funny enough uh, for for you know I know you you're stuck on the West Coast quite a bit, but um, I, I married into an Italian family with Italian yes. restaurant here in town, Salivo. Bobby Flay orders chicken parm every time he comes to. <laughs> he changes it up sometimes. You can't go wrong with chicken parm. It's it's a delicious thing. It's a delicious thing. What's what's your Santa Anita go to? What's your where where's your spots around Santa Anita? The Derby would be my favorite place near there. I mean, not only is the food great, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a museum when you see all the memorabilia they've got going back to George Wolf and, and who was one of the original owners of the restaurant and then all the sea biscuit memorabilia and more recent stuff from the current writers that are, that have left stuff there like Mike Smith, who's some signed goggles of his or some stuff that he's got from writings and yada. So that would be my, that would be my favorite place near there. Uh, how about down at Del Mar? There's a little Italian place in it I love called Trattoria Truly. You know, the, the obvious answer for people, I'm sure, is, is the Brigantine. And I love the Brigantine. It's, it's close. It's great. It overlooks the track. You can't beat their fish tacos. But I, I really, there's, when you come out here for next year's Breeders' Cup, I'm, I'm taking you to Trattoria Truly. It's, it's not Salevo, but hopefully it's. Uh, no, it, it's, I, it's, it's, you don't understand the pressure I have now when I'm, because my, <laughs> my in-laws, 
my in-laws always come with me. So I have to take them to places. We, you know, we went to San Anita. We, we went to, um, we went to Din Tai Fung because we're, we're right. we all live in Saratoga. So unfortunately we don't have great Asian options. So we went to Din Tai Fung. That was amazing. They love that. Yes. Uh, we went to a Royal chop house. They love that. They love a yes. nice steakhouse. They, we enjoyed, that was a fun one. And then, um, yeah, so we, we like to, so yes, I will take, I will, I need all the help I can get when we get to, when we get down to Del Mar. Um, that sounds amazing. Um, what are you doing Louisville? Whew. That's, that's tougher. I, I really like, uh, proof on Maine is probably my favorite place to go. Um, I like steak, but I don't like to eat it that often. You know, obviously Jeff Ruby's is terrific, but, uh, I, I like, uh, I like proof on Maine. That's probably my favorite, my favorite place in town there. All right. All right. Well, that, that, those are the big ones. I just had to check on you on that. And then um, I, I saw in an interview that you, that you love Kirby enthusiasm. I'm a huge fan <laughs> too. Um, my favorite Kirby enthusiasm episode is probably uh, the HOV lane going to the Dodgers game. That's, that's probably Palestinian chicken. <laughs> Pal- no palestinian chicken is the correct answer <laughs> okay well i'm gonna watch that tonight before i go to bed I'm gonna remind <laughs> myself. what a good show and then you also said in an interview one time that that of all of the websites that you go to you go to a website every day you go to stubhub what are you doing at stubhub every day well i don't know about every yeah every day might, that might have been uh, okay uh, I, I, I go on it, but I don't know that I go on it every day. I mean, I do. I, I, I like sports. Uh, I'm a huge LA Kings fan. I have a partial season seat package with some friends. I mean, we have season seats, but I have a quarter share. Um, so, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go on, on StubHub if I'm like out of town and I want to go to a, a sport event, but not, it's not like something I'm, it's not like I went on it today, for instance, to, you know, to see uh, a minor league hockey game in San Diego or something like that. I I love StubHub. I just uh, I just wish that the that when I when I thought I was buying a ticket for one eighty that it didn't be two seventy five. It really it really sucked you in. It's like it's like old school eBay where you bid on something for twenty eight dollars. You think you're gonna get it? Oh my gosh! It just yeah, they now have a tab though where you can you can you can hit a tab but that shows what the out the door price is going to be before you uh, before you click through. I gotta so, start hitting that. I gotta yeah, start that. yeah. Because no, you're right. If, if you don't hit that, you're you often are in for a big surprise. You're like, oh my goodness, um, Jay. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a ton of fun, and 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 you're one of those guests that I don't I don't want to I don't want to uh, I don't want to wear you out here because I'd love to have you back. I'm. This is episode. I think we're on. This is 59 or 60. Um, but I, I have a whole list of people that uh, I'd like to have back for a second round. And, and uh, so I want to, I want to, I want to save a little bit for that. I appreciate you taking the time. No, this was great. I really appreciate you. Uh, you having me on Jonathan. And if I know I'll see you before then, but uh, we're, we're making a date for Trattoria truly for uh, next year's breeder stuff out here. I can't wait. I'm going to send, uh, I'm going to send my family the, the menu. Now they love it. They love to look at a menu ahead of time and start thinking about all the things they're going to get. <laughs> you'll love it sounds good i appreciate you jay all right thank you jonathan that was awesome uh you're probably at your at, at your at your family's house or your friend's house or wherever you're trying to get so i'm gonna leave you alone i'm gonna say uh thank you to our friends at qatar racing for supporting the podcast as always uh and and thank you to all of you i'm, I'm thankful for uh 
Pete Fornatel. I'm thankful for uh, the fans. I'm thankful for the people I get to work with on the Naira and Fox shows. Uh, I'm thankful for uh, the four-legged animals that give us so much joy and and, and, and something to get excited about. Um, basically, every day when we wake up, whether you're looking at Twitter or you're, you're watching racing, betting racing, uh, training, owning, it's uh, I'm very thankful uh, for these horses. I'm thankful for uh, this sport. And uh, once again, I just want to say it again. I'm very thankful for you. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to listen. Enjoy your day, and we'll see you next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche, there's five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in talk up their body. Another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets I'm 